Welcome to another Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the Apostle John's revelation of Jesus Christ. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. to cover this morning and a fairly short time to get there. This morning is really going to be, for many of you, a review of things that hopefully you already know. But my plan is to put all the pieces together this morning so that we can see yet again that these things that we are hearing in the apocalypsis, the revelation of Jesus Christ, these things are not unique These are things that have echoes all the way through the Bible and then are culminating in the book of Revelation. 
My argument throughout the teaching on the book of Revelation is that the better you understand your Old Testament, the better you're going to understand the book of Revelation because it is, again, such a very Jewish book. But even the promises and declarations that are made in the book of Revelation are things that have already been said, already been predicted, already been prophesied in the Bible. So then it shouldn't be any surprise that we see these declarations here in the book of Revelation. Last week, we really concentrated on the people who had overcome the beast and his mark, who were in heaven and who were celebrating God, were worshiping God. And the worship of God took two forms, according to Revelation 15. One was that they recited the Song of Moses. So last week, we concentrated on the Song of Moses. And just before we got done last week, we looked at what is called the Song of the Lamb. And I read it through, and I really only concentrated on one particular phrase, the phrase, who will not fear the Lord and glorify his name, And I concentrated basically on the fact that human beings are just so depraved that you can ask that question of them. Who is it that's not going to fear the Lord and glorify his name? Human beings who I identified last week as just insane, for some reason, do not glorify the only God who is the maker of heaven and earth, the sovereign God who does whatever he wants any time he wants, yet human beings in their ego, in their flesh, will not worship him. And we all agreed that that is the state of human beings. This morning, I want to look at that same phrase within the context of what's actually being said in the Song of the Lamb, because I believe what John is really getting at here is it's a declaration that once Christ returns to the planet and sets up his kingdom... There's going to be no one left who is not going to worship him. Because what we've read repeatedly in the Bible is that every knee is going to bow. Every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You're going to bow the knee one way or the other. It's just going to happen. Now you're either going to bow the knee willingly before God. Or he's going to break your knees with his rod of iron and you're going to bow the knee. But one way or another, everybody on the planet is going to have to deal with God because one way or another, you're leaving this planet. Either you're taken away by Christ when he comes back for his church or you're going to live here long enough to die. But one way or another, you're standing before the God of eternity. One way or another, you're going to worship him. One way or another, you're going to recognize who he is and what he's about. Now, Why do I say that that statement, who will not fear the Lord and glorify his name, why do I say that that's a more definitive statement than really a question? Because of the phrase just before it, where Jesus is identified as the king of the nations. And that phrase, king of the nations, you could use as a title for this morning. And it's really what we're going to concentrate on this morning. Because the declaration that Jesus Christ is finally the king of the nations, the king of the ethnos, the king of every ethnic group, the king of all the Gentile nations, no longer just king of the Jews, which he was declared when he was here to begin with, 
but that he is going to rule all the nations of the earth, that finally comes to its fruition here in the book of Revelation. And therefore, since he is the king of the nations, everybody, all the nations, all the Gentiles, everybody left on the planet, everybody who took the mark, everybody who bowed the knee to the Antichrist, everybody is going to have to admit that he is king of kings and lord of lords. And so we're going to read this song of the Lamb one more time. And then, as I said, we're going to concentrate on the background, the history, all the Bible that declares that Jesus is going to be king of the nations. And here he is declared to actually be the king of the nations because this is really the theme of the whole Bible. One of the big themes of the Bible is obviously God's redemptive purpose, God doing his work of redeeming his people. But the other declaration that you see throughout the Bible is that there is a kingdom coming. David's greater son is going to sit on David's throne ruling. And when he does, all the nations of the earth, all the Gentiles are going to flow to him. And he is indeed going to be king of nations. The book of Revelation is just simply declaring that it's happening. So predicted, prophesied, declared throughout the Bible Unquestionably, Christ is coming back to set up his kingdom and be the king. By the way, let's define kingdom for just a moment. There are just a couple of elements that you have to have to qualify as a kingdom. First, you have to have a ruler. What we're told here is that Jesus is that ruler. Jesus is the one who is going to be the king. The second thing you need for a kingdom is you need a realm an area over which you are the king, over which you are the ruler. Every king who has ever been kingly on planet Earth has ruled over a particular area, a particular realm. No one has ever achieved universal dominion, universal kingship over all the Earth and all the peoples. It's declared right here that Jesus is going to do that. The third thing you need for a kingdom is that you need people who are ruled over, the actual subjects of the king. And again, just like every king on planet Earth has had a limited area and a limited people group over whom he has exercised his kingship, we read here that Jesus is declared to be the king over everything, everyone, every place. He is the first king in history who is going to achieve universal dominion. So when you hear the phrase king of nations, think king who has universal dominion. You got it? Got it. Does that definition work for you? Sure. I'm still just introducing, so none of these introductory comments count against my time. That's just the rule. That's how it works. Let's read the song of the Lamb that's going to be declared in heaven by those who overcome the beast and his mark. Great and marvelous are your works. That word great, it's just like with great tribulation. It's the word megas. It doesn't mean great like we say the word great. Oh, that's great, Luann. Yeah, you got a new dress? Great. That's not the way the word is being used here. It's being used here as magnificent, as overwhelming, 
And so great and marvelous, we will marvel at it. People who understand who God is, what God is doing, and what God is accomplishing on the planet are going to marvel at what he has done. Great and marvelous are all your works. O Lord God, the Almighty, last week I stressed to you, if he is the Almighty, how much might, how much power does that leave for you? That'd be none. Therefore, he is the one who is going to rule over everybody. He has all the power. He has all the might. Righteous and true are your ways because he is supremely honest, supremely holy. Therefore, whatever he does by virtue of the fact that it's a righteous God who's doing it, whatever he does is therefore righteous and honest and true. Those are all his ways. And then he is declared to be the king of the nations. Who then, given that, given that we know that he has all the might, all the righteousness, all the holiness, all the truth, knowing that he is great, knowing that he's marvelous, well then who's not going to reverence him? That word translated fear here means to reverence, to revere him, to get down in front of him. It doesn't mean like slavish fear. It doesn't mean like, oh no, it's God, I'm scared. It means a reverent fear of God where when you encounter God, you get on your face and you recognize the difference between his eternal righteousness and holiness and your complete um, lack of anything like that. (laughs) Who will not reverence you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. A minute ago, I asked you, uh, if he has all the power, what power do you have? You correctly answered none. At least most of you correctly answered none. (laughs) Here, what we read is, he alone is holy. So how many other holy ones are there? None. None. So then, if it is necessary for you to have a standard of righteousness and holiness in order to stand before him, in order to be in his presence, in order to be eternally with him. Jesus said, except your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will in no wise see the kingdom of God. So you need righteousness, you need holiness in order to be eternally with this righteous holy God. Where are you going to get it? You can only get it from the only one who actually has it. And he graciously, kindly gives you the righteousness and holiness that is necessary because he alone is holy. And then a moment ago, I emphasized that he is called the king of the nations. Now it is declared because all the nations, all the Gentiles, all the ethnic groups will come and worship before you. For your righteous acts have been revealed. Okay, so what is the meaning of the book of Revelation? Apocalypsis is the Greek word that is translated revelation. That word means uncovering. Therefore, it is called the revealing, the revelation of Jesus Christ. And at this point, when he is declared to be the king over all the nations, over all the Gentiles, over all the land, when he is the completely dominant king of everything, then the declaration will be true that all nations come and worship before him, and his righteous acts have finally fully been revealed. 
Now, those very same righteous acts, am I talking really fast this morning? Those very same righteous acts have been declared and prophesied all the way through the Bible. They're just simply finding their culmination here. All the things that God has ever said are going to happen have come to their fruition. And so when that happens, all the righteous acts of God are going to be revealed. I told you all the prophets prophesy about it. The prophets of the Old Testament speak with one voice. There are certain things that all the prophets say. For instance, they all say that God is going to reassemble Israel, that he's going to gather them from all the places that he scattered them, bring them back to their own land, plant them there so that they are never moved again. All the prophets say that. Another thing that all the prophets say is that God is one day going to set up a kingdom where he is going to rule all the nations of the earth. And in fact, when you read verse 4 of this song of the Lamb, and you read, for you alone are holy, for all the nations will come and worship before you, that reaches back to Jeremiah 10.6, which says, there's none like you, O Lord. You are great. And great is your name in power. And who will not fear you, O king of the nations? So Jeremiah predicted it. Here in the book of Revelation, what we see is the culmination, the fulfillment of that very thing. Jeremiah predicted that everyone on the earth is going to reverence and fear God, and he's going to be called the king of the nations. Then you get to Revelation. Who will not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name, for you are holy, and all the nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts are finally being revealed because you are indeed king of the nations. So again, John is just simply seeing the fulfillment of what the prophets have already said was going to happen. Nothing new, nothing unique. Psalm 86, 9 and 10 says, All nations whom you have made will come and worship before you, O Lord, and they shall glorify your name, for you are great, and you do wondrous deeds, and you alone are God. Sounds very familiar, very similar to the language we just read, because all the nations whom God has made will ultimately come and worship him. Look, why do you exist? Have you ever woken up in the middle of your life and gone, what am I doing? Why am I here? Why was I created? Why am I on the planet? Do I have a purpose? What is my function? I can answer that question. The Bible can answer that question. Philosophers of the world don't seem to be able to answer that question. They're still pondering, why are we here? What is the meaning of life? The meaning of life is to fear and worship God. That is why he made all the nations. For his glory, for his worship, and so ultimately all nations will indeed come and worship before you, O Lord, because that's why they were made. Revelation 15 is just the culmination of that. Christ is finally declared to be the king of the nations. And all the nations are going to gather. All the nations are going to reverence him. All the nations are going to fear appropriately their God. Psalm twenty-two twenty-eight tells us, For the kingdom is the Lord's, and he rules over the nations. 
So whether we're talking about Jeremiah, whether we're talking about David in the Psalms, this theme of God in Christ ultimately ruling over the nations of the earth is not only a purpose statement, this is the purpose for which these nations exist, but it is also a prophetic statement of the way that human history is going to wrap up. So let's do a quick review. I said that some of what I'm going to say this morning is going to sound like review to you. We're going to just go charging through the Bible, taking 70 league boots. And so I don't expect you to flip to all these places. Just hang on and follow along. And my hope is that when I get done, I will have given you such overwhelming evidence that you'll have no place else to go but to conclude that, yes, indeed, Christ is going to be king of nations. But first, I'm going to drink this weird blue stuff. (laughs) Let's start at the Davidic covenant. You should be familiar with the Davidic covenant by now. David wanted to build a house for God. God, through his prophet, told David, you're not going to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house. And then he declared that David was going to have an everlasting dynasty. Starting in 2 Samuel chapter 7, starting at verse 10, I will appoint a place for my people Israel. That's God speaking. I will appoint a place for my people Israel and I will plant them. In other words, they're never going to be moved again. So that they can dwell in their own place and not be disturbed again. And the unrighteous will not afflict them any more as formerly, even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel. Okay, first question. What people group is this about? Israel. Israel. That seems obvious, doesn't it? God says that there's going to be a time when he's going to plant them in their own land so that their enemies will never afflict them again. Has that happened yet? No. Is it in the Bible? Yes. Is it true then? Yeah, well, then we've got to say, well, yes, this has to happen. Otherwise, we have to say, no, there's a lie in the Bible. And we can't come to that conclusion since it is the very word of God. Therefore, we have to, by faith, understand that God is indeed planning someday to regather Israel, to replant them in their land so that their enemies will not afflict them as they did in the past. Yahweh also declares to you that Yahweh himself will make a house for you. God says to David, I'll make you a house. I'm going to make you a dynasty. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up one of your seed after you who will come forth from your own body and I will establish his kingdom. And he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Verse 16 says, and your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever, and your throne shall be established forever. That's why it's so important that when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the day that we know as the triumphal entry, the people were putting palm branches and their cloaks down in the street as he rode in on a donkey, and they were crying, Hosanna, son of David. The importance of that was they saw him as the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. He's our king. Isaiah picks up the same thing, talks about the Davidic covenant. This is chapter 9, verse 7. There will be no end to the increase of his government 
or of peace, and on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it in justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. Just like the original covenant says, your throne will be established forever. Isaiah the prophet then declares that the throne of David and the kingdom of David is going to be established from then on forevermore. And how is that going to be accomplished? Isaiah tells us the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. It's not going to be by human agency. It's not going to be because people got together like they tried to do with the triumphal entry. They tried to make him king right there and then. We'll talk more about that in just a moment. Because he knew that they were expecting the kingdom right then. So he had to explain to them that it wasn't quite yet. It's not that it was negated. It's just not yet. Turn to Isaiah 60. There's a couple of things in Isaiah 60 that I do want you to look at. We just read out of Isaiah 9. There are so many messianic prophecies in Isaiah. I'm going to read the first 15 verses. It's a lot to bite off, but we're just going to read through it just so you can hear again the declaration from God through his prophets that this kingdom is coming. Arise, shine, for your light has come. And the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. This is a prophecy to Zion, to Israel. For behold, darkness will cover the earth, and deep darkness will cover the peoples. That is the word goyim. That's Gentiles, all the nations. A deep darkness is going to cover the peoples, but the Lord will rise upon you, and his glory will appear upon you. And nations will come to your light. Same word, same goyim, same Gentiles are going to come to the light of Zion, which God is going to give to his people. The nations will come to your light and kings will come to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes round about and see. They all gather together and they all come to you. And your sons will come from afar. And your daughters will be carried in their arms. And then you will see and you will be radiant. And your heart will thrill and rejoice because of the abundance of the sea that is turned to you. That means you're going to have plenty to eat. The riches that the sea offers are going to be yours. And the wealth of the nations, of the goyim, of the Gentiles is all going to come to you. A multitude of camels will cover you, and young camels from Midian and Ephah, and all from Sheba will come, and they will bring you gold and frankincense, and they will bear good news of the praises of Yahweh. All the flocks of Kedar will be gathered together to you. The rams of Nebaioth will minister to you, and they will go up with acceptance on my altar, and I shall glorify my glorious house. The point of that entire group of phrases is just God saying, I'm going to enrich you. I'm going to make you wealthy because all the nations are going to bring you all their wealth. So then he can declare, verse 8, who are these who fly like a cloud? like the doves up into their lattices. Surely the coastlands will wait for me. 
And the ships of Tarshish will come first, and they will bring your sons from afar, and they will bring their silver and their gold with them for the name of the Lord your God and for the Holy One of Israel, because he has glorified you. And foreigners, those Gentiles, all the nations, will build up your walls, and your kings will minister to you, and their kings will minister to you. For in my wrath I struck you, but in my favor I have compassion on you. And your gates will be open continually. They will not be closed day or night, so that men may bring to you the wealth of the nations with their kings leading in procession. For the nation and the kingdom, which will not serve you, will perish and the nations, the Gentiles, will be utterly ruined if they don't come and worship at Israel. The glory of Lebanon will come to you, the juniper, the box tree, the cypress together, to beautify the place of my sanctuary. And I shall make the place of my feet glorious. And the sons of those who afflicted you will come bowing down to you. And all those who despised you will bow themselves at the soles of your feet, and they will call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Whereas you have been forsaken and hated, with no one passing through you, I will make you an everlasting pride, a joy from generation to generation. Does it sound like God's pretty serious about this whole restoring Israel thing? That's all I'm getting at. Okay, so that was prophesied in Isaiah. It's fulfilled, satisfied, in the declaration that he is king of nations in the book of Revelation. After pronouncing the new covenant, which specifically is made with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, you find that new covenant in Jeremiah 31. You also find it repeated in Hebrews 8 in the New Testament. It is the longest verbatim quote from the Old Testament transferred into the New Testament. That is the promise of the new covenant both times it is made with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. After pronouncing that new covenant in Jeremiah 31, starting at verse 35, we read, Thus says the Lord God, Yahweh who gives the sun for light by day and the statutes of the moon and the stars for light by night. The same Yahweh who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. Yahweh of hosts is his name. If these statutes, the statutes he's talking about, the sun and the moon, the stars coming and going in their orbits, the sea and the waves roaring, if those statutes are ever removed from before me, says Yahweh, then the seed of Israel will also cease from being a nation before me forever. As long as there is a planet, what's the likelihood that there's suddenly going to be no more sun, moon, stars? What's the likelihood that's going to... When is the sea ever going to just lay down like a puppy and not move anymore? When are there going to be no more waves in the sea? Well, we can't answer that question. God says, as long as there still are the natural occurrences of the planet, as long as there are waves and stars and sun and moon, as long as the natural course of this planet continues, then Israel's still going to be a nation before him. And then he goes on. Thus says Yahweh, 
If the heavens above can be measured, anybody want to try that? Anybody want to grab a yardstick and see what you can do with the whole universe? If the heavens above can be measured, if the foundations of the earth can be searched out below, then I will reject all the seed of Israel for all that they have done, declares Yahweh. Behold, days are coming, declares Yahweh, when the city will be rebuilt. He's talking about Jerusalem. It'll be rebuilt for God, for Yahweh, from the tower of Hanael to the corner gate. The measuring line will go out straight ahead to the hill of Garib, and it will turn at Goa. The only thing you need to catch from that is that that's further than Israel has ever existed. It's taking it out beyond what we know as the borders of Israel historically. That measuring line is going to go out. God is going to establish Jerusalem. It's going to be a magnificent territory and a magnificent rebuilding as the nations all bring their wealth to Israel for the rebuilding of the temple of God. And the whole valley of all the dead bodies and all the ashes and all the fields as far as the brook Kidron to the corner of the horse gate toward the east shall all be holy to Yahweh. And it will not be uprooted or pulled down anymore forever. So God sounds pretty committed to this whole Israel thing is the whole point. Even if you don't get the details, get a feeling for what God has said through all his prophets in the Old Testament. That he's going to reestablish Israel. He's going to reestablish the throne of David. Jesus is going to sit on that throne, ruling over all the nations. The nations are going to flow to Jerusalem. And therefore, he is rightly declared to be king of the nations. Does this make sense? Yes. Have I lost anybody? Nope. Because I'm not going back for you. I mean, if you're, if you're lost, just good luck to you. That's all I can say. We will drop breadcrumbs. But in Daniel 2, we're not going to read it, but in Daniel 2, by now you should know, because we've looked at a lot of Daniel as we've been reading the book of Revelation. In Daniel 2, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, saw a statue. Daniel interpreted the dream, and the statue signified a series of actual physical Middle Eastern kingdoms from Babylon down to Medo-Persia, down to Greece, down to the Roman Empire, and ultimately to a ten-toed kingdom made up of iron and clay. Daniel saw that and predicted it before any of that happened. It was during the time of Nebuchadnezzar, during the time of Babylon. And God explained the course of human history in the Middle East, the nations that were going to rule Jerusalem. God predicted them in advance, hundreds of years in advance, and then certainly enough, that all came true. But in that vision, during the time of the ten-toed kingdom, there was this rock that came down from heaven that smashed the entire statue, ground it to dust, and all those nations blew away, and then we were told that that kingdom of stone was going to last forever and never fade away. Verse 44 of Daniel 2 says, And in the days of those kings, the king of heaven will cause a kingdom to rise up, which will never be destroyed. And that kingdom will not be left to another people. It will crush and put an end to all those former kingdoms, and it itself will stand forever. How many prophets does that make now that have all said the same thing? There's this kingdom coming. 
And notice, by the way, that whether we're talking about Greece, whether we're talking about Medo-Persia, whether we're talking about Babylon, whether we're talking about the Roman Empire, those were all very physical, actual, literal, earthly kingdoms. Therefore, that final kingdom in that succession is also going to be a literal, physical kingdom that's going to occupy the same area that all those other kingdoms did, which puts it squarely in Jerusalem, just the details all fit together so perfectly. I have said so frequently, if I didn't worship the God of this Bible, I would have to worship the men who figured out how to put it together. Because it's, it's brilliant in its details. Later on in Daniel, in Daniel 7, Daniel sees a vision of a succession of beasts. And then there is the final nondescript beast. And while that beast is alive, this is what is written, starting in verse 12. As for the rest of the beasts, all those other kingdoms, their dominion will be taken away. An extension of life was given to them for an appointed season of time. And then Daniel kept looking in the night vision, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like the Son of Man was coming. Who's that? Jesus, Jesus talked about in the Old Testament. One like the Son of Man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days. Who's that? That's God himself. Jesus approaching the Ancient of Days and came near before him. And to him, the Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that all the peoples, all the Goyim, all of the ethnic groups, so that all the peoples, all the nations... And men of every tongue might serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not be taken away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Are you getting a feel for this? Look, I was sitting one time with Elder Ward. We were talking about this very topic. We were talking about Israel and the future for Israel. And I said to him, How many times does God have to say something for it to be true? Because this is said over and over and over and over again. So I said, how many times does God have to say something for it to be true? And he tamped down his pipe and leaned in close to me and said, only once. And that's a fact. If it was only said once in the Bible, we'd have to conclude, okay, that's said once. It must be true. How often now have we seen this declaration of a kingdom to come, which Christ himself is going to rule over, and all the nations, all the peoples, all the tongues are all going to gather to him. We don't have time this morning because Leon has an eye on the clock. We don't have time this morning to get into the book of Hosea, but you should know the theme of the book of Hosea, which is God cast off Israel And then he's going to regather them and build a hedge around them and protect them in their own land. That's the theme of the book of Hosea. Amos, one of the minor prophets. In Amos 9, 8, we read, Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are on the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from the face of the earth. And nevertheless, I will not totally destroy the house of Jacob, declares the Lord. Who's the house of Jacob? Israel. Israel. So here's God saying, even though they're sinful, even though they've rebelled against me, just like he told Jeremiah, 
I'm not going to destroy them. I'm not going to get rid of them. I'm going to correct them. I'm going to punish them. Amos 9, 14 and 15 says, And I will restore the captivity of my people Israel. How plain is that? God is the one who put the northern kingdoms into the Assyrian captivity, and they have never returned to their land since then, which is why we call them the lost tribes. The southern kingdom, Judah, remained intact until Jesus came, 70 AD. Titus comes steaming into Jerusalem, destroys the walls, destroys the temple, and then the southern tribes are scattered. And yet every single one of the prophets say the same thing, that God is responsible for scattering them, and God is going to regather them. And I will also restore the captivity of my people Israel, and they will rebuild the desolated cities and live in them. And they will also plant vineyards and drink their wine and make gardens and eat their fruit. And I will also plant them on their land, and they will not be uprooted again from their land, which I have given them, says Yahweh your God. It's kind of inarguable anymore. Regardless of what you think of human history, regardless of what you might think of Israel as a people group, regardless of what you might think about what's going on on the planet right now, it is prophesied, it is declared over and over again in the word of God that he's not finished with human history. And by the way, human history is not determined by Joe Biden. Just thought I'd point that out. Obadiah 21. Everybody know Obadiah. Are you familiar with Obadiah? Obadiah 21. The deliverers will ascend Mount Zion to judge the mountain of Esau. Who's the mountain of Esau? I don't care if this sounds like a slightly racist statement. The descendants of Esau are the Middle Eastern Arabs. There's no way around it. That's just genetics. Mm -hmm. And they have been the ancient enemies of Israel ever since the time of Jacob and Esau. And God said, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. The declaration is that God is going to judge the mountain, the kingdom of Esau, and the kingdom will be the Lord's. Even the ancient enemies of Israel are going to bring their wealth to Jerusalem. Micah 4.8, as for you, tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion. Okay, who, who is the hill of the daughter of Zion? Israel. As for you, tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you it will come even the former dominion will come. Once upon a time, Jerusalem was such a great nation that kings and queens would come from other places like the Queen of Sheba who came just to see the glory of King Solomon. When she got there, she said, I've heard about this, but the half wasn't told me. You're a spectacular king. Once upon a time, Jerusalem was a spectacular kingdom. The promise in Micah is that that same former dominion is going to return to them and then he calls them the kingdom of the daughter of Jerusalem. Pretty clear. Okay, so I can hear what you're thinking. 
you're thinking, yeah, Jim, but that's all Old Testament. What about the New Testament? Once you know all these prophecies in the Old Testament, it's no surprise that Jesus walks on the planet. You turn into the New Testament right away. Matthew 3, 2, Jesus is walking around saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's talking kingdom talk again. In fact, Matthew 4.17 repeats it. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew 4.23, Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. And then he taught his disciples to pray. And when he taught them to pray, he said, say, Our Father who art in heaven. You all know this. You've grown up with this prayer. You know it just by being around it. You know it by osmosis. Do you realize what you're saying? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Then the first petition that Jesus placed was, Thy kingdom come and thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's how important it was to Jesus. Before you ever get to give us our daily bread, before you ever get to forgive me my sins, you start with bring your kingdom. Jesus speaking to his 12 apostles in Matthew 19, starting at verse 28, talking to his apostles, he said this to them, Truly I say to you that you who have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne. See, Jesus knew there was a glorious throne coming. Jesus knew that one day he would establish his kingdom. And so in the regeneration, in the restoration of all things, in the apocalypsis, in the uncovering of the glory of Christ, in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also will sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. When he said that, the northern 10 tribes weren't even in their own land. Like I said, they've become known as the lost tribes, sort of disappeared into the Gentile nations. And yet, Jesus said to his apostles, you're going to sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Why? Because God knows how to find them. He knows how to restore them. He has all the promises that he has put in the Old Testament of the restoration of Israel. And Jesus confirms that restoration by saying, when I sit on my glorious throne, you're going to sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So there have to be 12 tribes of Israel to judge over. I'm halfway done. For our visitors, that was a joke. It's okay. I'm not going to keep you. I just have to talk much faster. Jesus talking about the white throne judgment. We all know this. The separation of the sheep and the goats. Matthew 25. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered in front of him. Why? Because he's the king of the nations. And all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another, just as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right hand and the goats on his left. And then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom that was prepared for you 
from the foundation of the world. That's Jesus talking. If your Christianity does not include Jesus being able to say things like that about his kingdom, about his throne, and about his judgment of all the nations, well, then you don't have a complete concept of what Christianity is yet. Matthew 26, 29, but I say to you, this is after the Lord's Supper, after he had taken the wine, after he had taken the bread, he declares to them, but I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you. Where? In the kingdom. In my Father's kingdom. The kingdom has to be established before Jesus participates yet again in that memorial with his people. As I mentioned at the triumphal entry, we read about it in Mark 11.10. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. Mark 15.43, we read about Joseph of Arimathea when he came to ask for the body of Jesus. Part of his description was that he was himself waiting for the kingdom of God. Luke 19.11-12 Now, while they were listening to these things, Jesus went on to tell them a parable. He told them this particular parable because he was in Jerusalem, and they thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. That's why they were busy saying, Hosanna to the son of David. They thought, good, we're going to have a kingdom right now. And he's like the best king ever. He feeds us with bread. We don't even have to work. Baskets of fish, good. Coins out of fish's mouths. He's the best king ever. So because they believed that the kingdom was going to come immediately, he then gave them a parable that started with a nobleman went to a far country to receive a kingdom for himself and then to return. So Jesus put it in a timeline. I'm not here right now to establish the kingdom. The reason Jesus was here the first time was to die for our sinfulness, to make restitution between us and a holy God. When he comes back, we're told he's not coming back in regard to sin. He's coming back to establish his righteous kingdom. That's why he's returning. Peter at Pentecost in Acts 3, starting at verse 7, said, And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance just as your rulers also did. But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, That's been fulfilled. Therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send Jesus, the Christ who is appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the time of the restoration. So Peter agrees with what Jesus said. He learned it from Jesus, that Jesus was going to go away to heaven until the appropriate time for the restoration of all things, and then he's going to return. And during that period of the restoration of all things, Peter then says, about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient times. So even Peter, even Jesus... Even John and Revelation keep pointing back to the prophets of the Old Testament and saying there's nothing new here. This is what they've all told us. This is what they've all predicted. And Jesus is not on the planet right now because he has accomplished, according to Peter at Pentecost, he has accomplished forgiveness for sin. That's what he came to do. But he's coming back to establish his kingdom 
at the time of the restoration of all things, including the restoration of Israel and Jerusalem, and then he's going to sit on David's throne ruling over the nations because he's the king of the nations. Do you get my theme yet? King of the nations. King of the nations. Gosh, Jim, you must be done by now. Oh, no! The Bible says so much more about this. Are you becoming overwhelmed by how much the Bible talks about this? Well, yes. <laughs> the people of GCA are like, no. No, actually, we expected that. No. Okay, so Luke 1. The angel Gabriel speaking to Mary about her baby. This seems like pretty good authority. Luke 1, starting at verse 33. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. That's right in the declaration from the angel Gabriel to Mary about the purpose for why Jesus is coming to the planet. So that he can inhabit the throne of his father, David, because of the Davidic covenant that we began with 50 minutes ago. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and there will be no end to his kingdom. How often have we heard that phrase? Old and New Testament. There will be no end to his kingdom. Luke 21, 31. When talking about the tribulation, when talking about the time of trouble such as never was or ever would be again, which Jesus described as birth pangs, he then said, so you also, when you see these things, these birth pangs happening, recognize that the kingdom is near. So when we get into this time of trouble, this time of tribulation, this time of difficulty, this is why I've been saying for so many years, cheer up, saints, it's going to get worse. Because the Bible says it's going to get worse. So of course it's going to get worse. But it's going to get gloriously worse. And when you see these things coming about, then you know that the kingdom is close. By the way, that's why Jesus would say, when you see these things come to pass, lift up your eyes, your redemption's drawing nigh. He's coming to the planet to establish his kingdom, redeem his people, reestablish his people. This is wonderful stuff. You know what? I, I can get through today knowing this. I woke up this morning going, oh, not today. I can get through every day knowing this, knowing that God is so in charge of human history that he's got me in his hand. Oh, I don't have time to get preachy. Luke 21, 16, for I say to you, I shall never again eat of this bread until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Luke twenty two eighteen. for I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God Comes Luke twenty two twenty nine, and just as my father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and that you will sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. The thief on the cross in Luke twenty three forty two. You know there was one thief that died condemned, and there was one thief that died saved. And what did he say to Jesus? He said, "Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom." 
Even the thief on the cross knew the promise of the kingdom of God. So then it's no surprise at the beginning of the book of Acts that after 40 days of the resurrected Jesus talking to his disciples and we're told specifically that he was speaking about the kingdom of God. You can look it up in Acts 1.6. 40 days talking about the kingdom of God. How did they conceive of that kingdom? When they came together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time that you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? Because they know he's been talking about this restoration. He knows the prophets have talked about this time of restoration. There's this time coming when there's going to be a restoration of Israel. Okay, at the triumphal entry, they wanted to make you king, and you didn't go for it. Well, that's because you had to die, but now you've died, and you've raised again. What a great king. You're the king that can't be killed. The only thing that can mean is now you're ready to restore the kingdom to Israel. Is that what's going to happen now? What a natural question, given everything that the prophets have said, everything they have witnessed, everything they've heard from Jesus. Of course they would ask him, so now? You're going to do it now? So they asked him, are you restoring the kingdom to Israel now? And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria, the northern tribes, and even to the ends of the earth. So the gospel of Jesus Christ has gone out to all the people groups on planet earth. It didn't remain in Jerusalem. It didn't remain among the Jews. It's gone out to all the peoples of planet earth. Why? Because when the kingdom is established, he's going to be king of nations. 1 Corinthians 15, 22, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ is the first fruits. After that, those who are Christ at his coming And then comes the end, when he hands over his kingdom to God the Father. When he has, this is definitional of his kingdom, you know, when the planet is finally going to break out in the holiness and righteousness that God is expecting, that Jesus said, pray, your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Once God has established that, once Christ has ruled, he's then going to hand to his father the kingdom itself when he has abolished all other rule, all other kings, all other nations, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and all power because he must rule and reign until all his enemies are put under his foot. That's New Testament. Are you done, Jim? Nearly. 2 Timothy 4.1. You've heard me quote this enough times. It includes preach the word. That command from Paul, preach the word. That's why for 21 years that's all we do is preach the word. But look at the context in which Paul said it. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. And I charge you by his appearing and by his kingdom. That's essential to what Christianity is. It's essential to understanding biblical, fully orbed Christianity, that this kingdom is coming, and Paul was so confident of it, that he could use that as the foundation to say between now and when the kingdom gets here, 
preach the word. Don't preach your opinions. Don't preach your sports analogies and fishing stories. Don't entertain goats. Don't be rock stars. Preach the word. So that's what he said. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. That means whether it's convenient or inconvenient, be ready to do it. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and teaching. Last verse takes us to the book of Revelation. We already read it back in Revelation 11. Revelation 11, 15, the seventh angel sounded and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ and he will reign forever and ever. We started back at the Davidic covenant. That's roughly 3,000 years ago. We made it all the way to Revelation, and throughout the Bible, we saw declarations over and over again that the kingdom is coming, that Jesus is going to sit on David's throne, that the surrounding nations, including the enemies of Jerusalem, are going to worship God at Jerusalem, and they are going to be responsible for bringing the children of Israel, back to their land. The wealth of the nations is going to come to Jerusalem, and Jesus is going to sit on his glorious throne, and he is declared yet again to be king of nations. And who will not reverence and fear him when he's sitting on that throne? Now do you see why those who overcame the beast and his mark were in heaven singing that? Of course they're singing it. They're celebrating it. They're worshiping it. The fact that God has done what he talked about for thousands of years. And then it finally came to its fruition. They see it happening on planet Earth, and they worship God because he is working out his grand, glorious, sovereign plan in all of human history. That's a God I can worship. Yes. I don't need those wimpy little gods that some people talk about who's waiting for you to do something so that maybe he can do something. The Bible doesn't talk about that God. The Bible talks about the glorious, righteous, holy, sovereign God who's sitting on his throne right now doing whatever pleases him. And part of what he's pleased to do is save you. It doesn't get better than that. Look, the same God who can declare history in advance, the same God who can prophesy what's going to happen and then it happens, and who has a perfect batting average going so far, the God who has declared that certain things are going to happen in history and we can look back at history and say, yep, it happened, just like he said That's the same God who has made promises to you. And if he can control all of human history, if he can control the universe, if he can control things at a cellular level, then when he says to you that you belong to him, 
and that he's going to save you eternally, you can trust that. You can stand on that, and regardless of the circumstances of your life, you can say, I am saved by an absolutely sovereign God who proved it and who is bringing his son to be king of nations. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.